You're listening to Soundbar, a podcast on white-collar defense, presented by Goodwin. Corporate innovation people. Through our 21st century lens, this concept immediately brings to mind companies such as Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, Uber. But for most of the 20th century, the concept of corporate innovation properly evoked GE, the General Electric Company. We'll always be GE. We bring good things to life. Everyone knows about light bulbs. Indeed, the company was founded by Thomas Edison and others in 1889 as the Edison General Electric Company. But there's so much more, so much more innovation throughout the 20th century. Jet engines, lasers, MRIs, plastics. Yes, Benjamin, plastics. There's a great future in plastics. Think about it. Will you think about it? Yes, I will. My guest today is GE's former general counsel, Bracket Deniston. You have professionals running the process and their objective is to find out the facts. They're gonna do what they have to do to find out the facts. Bracket, originally from the Chicago area, shares with us some of his thoughts on white collar practice from the perspective of a Fortune 500 general counsel. Bracket, good morning, thanks for being here. Uh, Jim, I'm glad to be here. It's always uh, uh, a lot of fun to spend time with you. We, we've had some fun. We've had some fun. I hope this uh, counts in that column. Uh, it, it does already. Thank you. Uh, I want to focus mainly on your time when you were in-house at, at GE. But before that, let's touch briefly on your, your stint as a prosecutor. You were the chief of the major frauds unit in the Boston U.S. Attorney's Office uh, in the 80s. Uh, under Bill Weld, and you were essentially in charge of white-collar crime. Is that essentially correct? Yes. Not, non-corruption, white-collar crime. There was a separate corruption unit. So my, I guess my first question is, how was it possible to prosecute white-collar crime cases before there was email? You know, it wasn't so hard. Uh, as Jim, Jim Comey has said, email is... Uh, 20th century gift to prosecutors. But before there were emails, there were lots of documents. Um, and documents were critical to uh, any white-collar uh, case. So I don't think it was uh, even significantly different. In addition, there were witnesses just like you have today. So in most white-collar cases, the first witness I always looked to was the secretary um, because the secretary was almost always telling the truth. But there were lots of witnesses uh, that you could uh, get to uh, just as you can today. And then thirdly, you had other tools. You had wiretaps and uh, you had cooperating witnesses and things like that. So it wasn't dramatically different, though I think today it is a little bit easier and a little bit more terrifying because so much email is lying around. People talked on the phone back then instead of sending emails, so the secretary might hear someone talking on the phone. And that was an old-fashioned uh, way of communicating back then, correct? Yes, but more often than not, you'd, you'd find a memo to the file or something like that that would record what happened during the tele telephone conversation. You also had telephone records, which, which would help you. In one case, uh, I had uh, American Express records, and I cross-examined a defendant in a big fraud case 
who had testified to being in particular places that would have had him um, not present when some of the worst behavior was exhibited in the case. And I showed how he was in fact present by uh, where he was at a particular time based on that record. So um, prosecutors uh, can always find resourceful, resourceful ways to prosecute uh, white collar crime. What, what kind of cases was you, the office prosecuting in, in, the, in the 80s? Uh, our main focus was on market infractions, so in, insider trading, market manipulation. We had an ongoing wiretap case involving penny stocks, um, had some relationship to a similar uh, uh, investigation that was ongoing in, in Colorado. Uh, we also looked at cases that involved uh, large numbers of victims, so boiler rooms, particularly commodity boiler rooms, which were, uh, I would say, fashionable among the crooks. Um, and then we looked at uh, broader issues. We, we did tax shelters. Tax shelters were a prominent source of, of fraud. Um, and then we looked at egregious uh, kinds of, of fraud. Uh, I prosecuted uh, uh, the first um, adoption fraud case where people were induced to give money on the basis of pictures and, and appealing stories about an adopted child. And then the crooks uh, took the money and never delivered the child. Uh, I prosecuted the first RICO case against a company in a white-collar context involving falsification of test results on chips that were used in the Challenger flights and used militarily. What, what, what was it about that case that, that justified, um, you know, the heavy weaponry of RICO in a white-collar case? It was, first of all, it was collective. The, the whole company was participating in it. Secondly, it involved highly sensitive, uh, dangerous areas. If a chip goes on the Challenger, the challenger blows up. Um, in critical defense contexts, if the chip doesn't work, you're at risk of being killed by your enemies. So I, I thought that was such an egregious offense that it was worth bringing as a RICO, even though if you're a prosecutor, bringing a RICO in those days and probably still today requires approval uh, by by then the organized crime section of the Department of Justice. Did so, you have any difficulty getting approval for this prosecution, or it, including the RICO charges? I, I had to work hard at it. <laughs> <laughs> I had to work hard at it, but I don't think there was major difficulty. It was just a bureaucratic uh, burden. Uh, so you, you indicted the corporation in that case? Yes. And did they plead guilty, or did you have to go to trial? Uh, they pled guilty, and one outcome of the trial was that the company stock was forfeited. Uh, which is a remedy that RICO provided. So the government ended up owning this defense contractor. Which wasn't probably worth much after the indictment, right? It actually was worth, worth something. It was worth less. <laughs> they, had, they had good technology. Yeah. So you, you were also uh, a member of the Attorney General's uh, sort of operation committee on white-collar crime. So you met with people in, in Washington and talked about sort of, you know, national white-collar strategies. What was that like? Well, it was a, it was both a lot of fun, but um, also important. Uh, before that coordinating committee existed, you, you, you had districts pursuing different cases without any coordination at all. So what 
the committee enabled was one, setting priorities, uh, and two, dealing with multi-state investigations, and three, uh, sharing information about a case that you might have not been able to bring but some other district could work on. And one example of that was um, that I got a tip from somebody I knew in the industry about how insider trading was being done in the big um, financial firms in New York. Um, and I went to the uh, head of the Commodities and Securities Fraud Unit in the Southern District, and I said, uh, this is how it's working. They're not trading on their own deals. They're trading on their friends' deals. And they think that will protect them. And that uh, resulted in um, the great big insider trading cases that ultimately uh, were headlines in, in the 80s. Rudy Giuliani headlines, by the way. <laughs> so so when you're in these uh, meetings and discussions in Washington with sort of a national white-collar enforcement perspective, uh, are, there, are there views about in these cases whether the corporations as well as individuals should be charged? Is that an issue about who should be the defendants in white-collar crime cases? Well, we never discussed that at all in this committee. I don't think it was a controversial item uh, that uh, I as a prosecutor and my fellow prosecutors for the most part went where the evidence went. And that would be true of a company as well as an individual. You know, the uh, principles of federal prosecution, which still rule what uh, federal prosecutors do, spell out what you're supposed to do. And you're supposed to follow the evidence. And whether it's a corporation or an individual, that's your obligation. The idea of trading off a plea for a corporation in order to get the individuals off would have struck us as um, has uh, completely improper. So you eventually move on. You have a number of interesting jobs in the interim. Uh, but you move on to GE in 1996. You're head of litigation for uh, a while, and you become general counsel. Um, so you're at GE when the sort of the the, fina the financial fraud scandals of the early 2000s sort of erupt. And one of the things that happens in this time period, of course, is that uh, Arthur Anderson, the outside auditors for Enron, uh, gets indicted on one count of obstruction of justice based on its implementation of the sort of air quote document retention policy, i.e. using its shredders. Um, they're indicted, convicted a few months later. Um, Several years after that, the conviction is reversed based on an erroneous, fatally flawed jury instruction. Um, but when, when you're at GE, you, the, you know, the, the nation sees Arthur Anderson be you know, indicted and convicted, and it's business destroyed, really, just, just because of the indictment itself, really. Um, which raises the question, so, you know, can a large company um, afford to be indicted? And can it, can it survive an indictment? Well, I think it can. Uh, Anderson was a peculiar circumstance. Um, and once it was convicted of a felony, it could no longer, under SEC uh, procedures, it, it could no longer uh, be a certifying auditor on a public company financial statement. So it was an automatic 
death penalty. And that made the case somewhat unique. There are other cases that involve regulated areas where uh, a conviction of a company might be a bigger problem, but rarely a death penalty. So it might be a bigger problem in a, say, a, a regulated bank. Uh, and a lot of the pleas with the big banks have involved working around that particular problem. But for the most part, I, I don't think uh, it's a death penalty at all. GE had had, long before I got there or before I got there, in the 80s, it had, it had pled guilty to a, a couple of defense frauds. Uh, and it didn't go out of business. It, it faced the possibility of, of debarment, but it wasn't debarred. So I think Anderson has created in the public mind this notion that it's uh, impossible to have a conviction and survive. Uh, and I don't think it is at all. I think in some situations it could be, but in most not. So while you're at GE, the Department of Justice um, issues a number of memoranda regarding prosecution of companies and how companies can avoid prosecution and how what companies need to do to cooperate with the government in order to avoid prosecution. You got the Holder memo in 1999, the Thompson memo 2003, and so on and so forth up to through the you know, the, the Rod Rosenstein memo of 2018. And what, what all of these, these memos differ in certain respects, and, but they, what they all have in mind, essentially, is the idea of the Department of Justice's essential, you know, deputization of corporations um, to help the Department of Justice prosecute individuals. And one of the, you know, one of the things that comes, that is set forth in these policies is, you know, in, encouraging corporations to waive the attorney-client privilege, uh, putting pressure on corporations not to be in defense, the joint defense agreements, putting pressure on corporations um, not to indemnify people that aren't legally entitled to it. Um, so while, while you're at, while you're at GE, um, do any of these particular issues, the sort of ways that companies are pressured uh, to gain cooperation credit, did, did you, do you run into these during that time period? Well, we, we certainly ran into them, Jen, because we always had, or we almost always had, investigations that were ongoing and the government was involved in um, some way, in some way, shape, or form. But... Um, in order to explain this, I have to give a little background. Our, our policy at GE was framed around our compliance structure. And we, beginning in the early 90s, but expanding greatly, when I got there, we had four people. Uh, over time, we ended up having 300 compliance people. So we created this compliance environment. And one element of how we approached uh, compliance was when we found a violation of our rules that breached a, a statute, we generally cooperated with the government, especially the U.S. government, and we would disclose early. Self-report. Self-report early, which uh, altered how, how we saw that, that whole environment. And I'll come back to, 
to your to your core question about what impact these policies had on it. But so we were generally going to cooperate. Not every place. Lots of places, times outside of the U.S., you get no credit for cooperation, and we wouldn't do it then. But in the U.S., we, we generally cooperate. The, the complication of these memos is that it made it harder to cooperate. If you were required to waive the attorney-client privilege, if you could not advance fees, and often fees have to be mandatorily advanced because of indemnification bylaws that require uh, advancement, of fees and joint defense agreements. So we were worried about those parts of it. Those documents, especially the ones beginning around 2000 and again 2008, those were political documents. Political um, in what sense? Political in the sense that they were, they were uh, uh, designed to make it look like the Department of Justice was being tough on white collar crime. First, the product of Enron, and then second, the product of the, of the financial crisis. Um, the policies, moreover, in their earliest forms, when they required you to waive, when they required you not to have joint defense agreements, when they required you not to advance uh, uh, money in an indemnification context, that was wrong. That, that was, was the, I think you're talking about what's in, the, in the Thompson memo of 2004. Right. It's pretty much the most, the most extreme form um, of these memos. But that existed until the Philip memo. Uh, four years later. Yeah, got rid of it four years later. Yeah, when, um, you, when you say wrong, why, why do you think it's wrong? I don't, I don't think in the United States of America you require, you, you require to give up your privilege ever. The privilege is there for good and sound reasons, and that's why it was ultimately abandoned. The privilege is to protect your ability to consult with counsel not to coerce it in some way. And that, to me, is a fundamental error. And ad advancing legal fees, that's about allowing people to have legal representation. It's not about proving a crime. It has nothing to do with the crime. Um, and I, I, I think it's improper to use a coercive element uh, to force a defendant to plead guilty that's um, exogenous to the facts of the case. Well, every criminal defense attorney hearing this is going to love that because there's nothing sweeter from a criminal defense attorney panel than an indemnified individual. <laughs> you, you, can, you can go to trial. The guy's not going to get broke. The company's paying for it. The sweet nectar of indemnification is critical to criminal defense. Jim, we in, I paid out millions of dollars in, indemnific in indemnification fees. What about joint defense agreements? Did you also think that the, the company should have? I mean, the, 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 in the Thompson memo, the, the joint def, the concept of joint defense is con, is construed by the Department of Justice as, you know, helping the crooks it's get off. It's obstru obstruction. They view it as they view it as obstruction. Well, I, I, you can make a better case uh, uh, about uh, joint defense agreements, uh, particularly broad joint defense agreements. And as a prosecutor, I was often suspicious. Um, but at the end of the day, if they're lawful, that is, if they are lawfully constructed to protect the attorney-client privilege, and in a complex case, it's hard for lawyers working together to share information unless they have a joint defense agreement, that's part of protecting the privilege. It's, it's long as it's not inherently illegal, as if it's not a cover for obstruction, but rather what it's intended to be 
a legitimate way to uh, fulfill your responsibilities as a lawyer by sharing confidential information. I don't think that's something the Department of Justice ought to be messing around with. And as general counsel of GE, when you had investigations um, and individual executives got got targeted or at least they were, you know, under suspicion of being investigated, um, did, and even if you thought they may have, um, you know, crossed a line or possibly committed a crime, did you have a view on whether it was appropriate for GE to be in a joint defense agreement with their, their lawyers? I, I, my view about whether to be in a joint defense agreement depended on the facts of the case. But if I thought it was in our best interest as a company to have a joint defense agreement that it would facilitate our communicating with individuals, then I was all for it. Uh, I, I wasn't always in favor of 15-page joint defense agreements. I thought often it was better just to have an informal agreement or a very uh, terse agreement. Yeah, it can be sort of circuit-dependent whether, you're, whether you're, you have to put it in writing. But certainly, I mean, if you're the general counsel of GE, it's not good for GE if one of its executives gets indicted. And you're better off supporting that defense effort uh, and, and, you know, assisting the lawyer for the executive and make sure, you know, the legal research is being shared and he's got access to emails and so forth, right? It, it is. Um, but I would, I would go back to what I said before about the way that we approached at GE investigating cases. Uh, we regarded it as our obligation to the culture to find out if there's, there was wrongdoing. So we had a hotline. We had an ombud system uh, that people could go to and uh, disclose what they thought might be improper behavior, concerns is what we called them. And we would pursue those. And we would pursue them against individuals no matter what their position, no matter how high they were. And we had cases that we self-disclosed to the government that involved senior leaders of the company, and we fired this, the senior leaders. Where I come back to be in accord with what you said, yes, you must have the tools to defend your senior officers, is on the proviso that they haven't done something wrong. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, and so we had, a, we had an SEC case, um, a long-running investigation by the Boston office of the SEC around revenue recognition. It started with the abstruse... Uh, rules and regulations around hedging, which are thousands of pages. But even it extended to other revenue recognition, our industrial businesses. We didn't think our leaders were involved. But before we made that judgment, we looked at three million documents. And we, it was clear that our senior leaders weren't involved. And you're damn right we were going to defend them. And in defending them, you had to have a joint defense agreement with the individual lawyers who, who were representing them. So that that the different coloring, mm -hmm. it's not reflexively. You're always going to have a joint defense agreement. You're always going to defend the company. You can't do that in a public company. One thing that emerges before the Thompson Memorandum, but I think it's accentuated in the Thompson Memorandum, is, um, and it's, it's mentioned, is um, alternative um, resolutions, is I think the language in the Thompson Memorandum. And this has led and, um, to a, the widespread practice of non-prosecution agreements and deferred prosecution agreements, um, which have become much almost uh, routine in the last 20 years as a way to resolve uh, criminal matters. 
the deferred prosecution agreement, its basis is um, there is the corporation agrees to a statement of facts. The corporation agrees to cooperate with the government. The corporation takes remedial measures. Possibly a monitor is established. But the corporation doesn't have to plead guilty. Um, what are your thoughts on deferred? You mentioned earlier that when you were a prosecutor, you followed the facts. If it was the corporation, you would go after the corporation. If it was the individual. The trend now has been for corporations to be able to resolve matters with the Department of Justice through deferred prosecution agreements. What are your thoughts on that? Well, my thoughts are, Jim, that there are perfectly appropriate vehicles for achieving justice. And I start from the premise that companies, especially bigger companies, um, the, the people who are hurt by fines and things like that are the shareholders who have nothing whatever, for the most part, to do with what the behavior in the company was. And so you have to consider that. And you'll see that in some of the more recent uh, announcements, particularly in, in the last three or four years. So I start with that. In any event, the, the, the whole aim of, of justice in a corporate setting, such as you described, um, in a non-pros, deferred pros environment, is adequate punishment deterrence of the company, which often will involve a significant fine, and importantly, remediation. In most of the deferred uh, and non-pros agreements will involve elements of, we want to be sure you have a good compliance program. Sometimes we want to be sure that, that that's uh, checked by a third party uh, that you have to hire and monitor who reports to us. So at the end of the day, there are important reasons to do it in that, that kind of setting. And you don't need the, the prosecution of the company to achieve all those objectives in most cases. Now, there are exceptions to that. Uh, Siemens. Siemens was a massive, multi-year bribery machine. And so they had to be treated a little differently. And sometimes that's, that's the case. But the deferred and non-pros agreements allow you, allow you to not have a conviction um, and to, uh, in that context, reform your company. Uh, and that's a, better way to, that's a better way to do it. Would that have been a better way, in your opinion, to resolve the Arthur Anderson situation, possibly? For sure. For, for, for sure. And, and Anderson could have been easily uh, resolved as a deferred pros prosecution for a significant fine and a bunch of remediation and, and, and maybe even a monitor, although it was one thing. It was shredding documents according to a corporate policy. Yeah, someone could monitor their shredding policy for 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> so was GE ever pressured to waive the attorney-client privilege in an investigation, and how did you deal with that? We were a few times in the high tenor of the Thompson. We were pressed. We tried to get around it by using hypotheticals and things like that that wouldn't be a waiver. We, we always had to worry in any setting that 
civil cases would. You're going to share the litigation. Yeah, we're, we're going to accompany whatever resolution we ended up with. And to put the point on it, if you if you waive in a criminal investigation, then the and you have subsequent shareholder litigation, you know, it's it's one document request. You know, give us all your communications with the government, right? Exactly. And those aren't privileged. Well, uh, last I looked, they're only privileged in the maybe Eighth Circuit, but um, they're not privileged. Right. So how would you, how would how would you kind of get around it? Well, as I said, I, I we we'd use hypotheticals. We 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 would try hard not to do an official waiver. And and we would you're resist smiling it. As we would you th- well, you're smiling as if this may have actually been a waiver. <laughs> yeah. Actually, the most direct way uh, to get around it is to g- give the facts. You're not giving them the memos, right. uh, you're, which are privileged. You're giving them the facts you found. Now, you can make an argument that that's a waiver, but it's fact-finding, and you're telling the prosecutor what the facts are. Yeah, facts aren't privileged. Exactly. But if you if you start getting it's – a, it's a slippery slope, I think, because if you get into sort of like – attributing facts to particular individuals, now you're getting closer to the things that you've actually learned in your internal investigation, right? Yes, but I don't regard that as uh, as either necessarily privileged or uh, has work product. Right, right. So let's talk about this, this whole idea of internal investigations from your perspective as the head of litigation and general counsel at GE. Um, I mean, internal investigations, everyone's doing them now. I mean, you can't read the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal without hearing about an internal investigation of, of something by someone, even sometimes when there's no, you know, regulatory or law enforcement. It's a very profitable it. industry, Jim. It's, it's, it's worse than we possibly could have hoped for, I agree. Um, but from the um, – how, how would you, f- for starters, if, if GE is doing an internal investigation um, – how do you decide whether this inv- the investigation warrants the involvement of outside counsel or not? You've got a bunch of really smart lawyers who work at GE. They're very competent. A lot of them are from big law firms or from prosecutors' offices. What what makes it necessary to involve outside counsel? Well, first, uh, we had a lot of lawyers, but we didn't have a lot of investigators or investigative lawyers. Over time we built our own internal unit uh, that included former prosecutors headed headed by uh, a very able lawyer who had been the number two person in the criminal division of the Southern District, Katie Chu. Uh, and we had investigators and we had the infrastructure to do more internally. But for the most part, we didn't. So we would ordinarily in any significant investigation, significant, we would hire outside counsel to partner with the inside counsel. Uh, and that was a resource issue as, as much as anything. It also was um, it, it, it was also something that helped us in our interactions with justice often, justice or other agencies, the SEC, to have an outside counsel who had credibility, and that was a factor. In, in whether we uh, select an outside counsel. So I'd say fundamentally it was resources and and help with credibility. How did you decide who the, if you, if, if you hire an outside law firm, how did you determine who the outside law firm would report to? 
Well, generally, outside counsel would report to the legal team. Uh, that would be me or the head of litigation or Katie Chu as head of investigations or one of the business, business lawyers for the most part. And I distinguish that reporting with a, another kind of reporting, reporting on what was going on. Internal up, reporting. Updating internally. And we, we would, in significant cases, report to the audit committee each meeting that the audit committee had on significant investigations. And that might be six or seven or eight, maybe fewer, maybe more at, at particular times. So significant investigations were reported uh, often to the audit committee. That didn't mean the audit committee was running those, uh, though they, they, they certainly had a role in advising and reacting. That's why we were reporting to them. But day to day, it was being managed by by the legal team. In exceptional cases, cases that might involve senior officers at the company or that were extremely uh, uh, consequential or potentially consequential, we would involve the audit committee managing uh, a particular investigation. Um, and for example, in the SEC investigation that I mentioned earlier in the podcast, Jim, uh, since that involved millions of documents, years of accounting, uh, we chose to have the audit committee manage that. And again, we would report to them more often, but there would be a more management element to it. And that was important for other reasons as well. You're going to get derivative lawsuits in that context. And so you need for the a, a board committee with independence, no insiders on the on that committee, represented by counsel that isn't company counsel, but representing that committee, you need that sort of structure in order to deal with derivative lawsuits and to best protect the audit committee or the special committee. What, what factors were important to you in, in hiring an outside law firm or outside lawyers in a regulatory or criminal matter investigation? Well, number one was competence. Um, and are you really good at doing investigations? Are you really good at working with uh, the SEC or the Department of Justice or another uh, criminal or civil investigator? Um, secondly, you, you, you wanted people who had credibility um, and sway with the Department of Justice or the other investigator. Uh, it's related to competence but it's broader. You want somebody who has integrity, who they trust, uh, and who knows them, and who, and, and who knows them. I'd say those are the two big factors. Often, if you've got a local peculiarity, you may be in a, in a district with a U.S. attorney that you have had no previous experience with and GE has no uh, presence, and then you'll look what about the local connections? So location could be important yeah, depending on the case. Location could be important, but you might have somebody local and you might have somebody uh, uh, also outside counsel uh, being the main investigative uh, counsel. Was it ever important to you in choosing outside counsel to pick a firm that GE did not have previous experience with so that the, um, you know, if, if the investigation came under some kind of scrutiny, the, the law firm could say they were, you know, they, they did not depend on GE for business, for example. 
I, it, it happened rarely. Uh, in picking, going through the process that I mentioned, for the most part, we wanted to pick people who would be regarded as independent, even if it became a public matter, or regarded with stature, not independence, because they didn't necessarily... The last thing you want is independent lawyers. You want lawyers who are representing you, right? <laughs> well, but you want good lawyers. Right, right. You know, yeah. The distinction between have they done work for you before and have they done no work for you before is not that great. It's right. facial. It's facial. Yeah. That said, there are some. there were some cases in which we wanted somebody who was completely independent. I mentioned that we... Uh, in that accounting case and in a number of other cases, a handful, uh, we, we had outside counsel completely independent representing the audit committee. And that was, that was essential for the credibility of, of the audit committee. We hired Cravath uh, to do that a number of times. So that, that would be one example of, of where we, we do that. There, there could have been others we didn't have them. I'll give you an example of one that should have been handled with, with outside counsel. The Matt Lauer case. NBC was once part of GE. It wasn't when this came up. But uh, there were complaints about Lauer's behavior, Me Too misbehavior allegations. It was investigated by the general counsel and her team, Kim Harris, at NBC. And they did not find any evidence to support uh, the allegations. And and. and and now these are high integrity people. I don't question the quality of their investigations. What what I would have worried about had I been Kim Harris is this is Matt Lauer. This is a franchise. You need the extra credibility of, of an independent counsel. An example, another example where the lack of independence somewhat undermined the output of a, of a counsel was uh, – Tony Volucas in, in GM, the Ignition cases, did a wonderful, comprehensive, well-done report. But a lot of people called it a whitewash because Jenner did business the, with the, GM. Their outside firm was Jenner yeah, Block. GM. Whereas Wells Fargo, when they went through their big investigation of their retail shenanigans, uh, they hired Sherman and Sterling. Sherman and Sterling had no relationship with them. And I think sometimes you just have to have that for for public con consumption. When you, when you have a, an outside firm doing an internal investigation for you, I mean, how, how do you control the scope of the work? How do you control the spend uh, in a situation where you don't want anyone to say later on that the, the GE didn't do everything it needed to do in the investigation? There's some tension, I think, between you know being having a reasonable investigation be done, and having the regulator of the Department of Justice say, "Well, you know, you should have reviewed 10 million more email. You should have talked to 30 more people." I, I, I got to say, I never worried about that at all. I, I, I think partly it is if you have professionals running the process and their uh, objective is to find out the facts. They're going to do what they have to do to find out the facts. Now, I always expected that those investigative lawyers would also be prudent about what we were spending, that they would, they would ask for budgets, that they would be scrutinizing the bills when they came in, that they would drive a good deal when they hired somebody 
Uh, but that's where to get the cost. Uh, I never worried for a second that somebody was going to be cheap and not uh, pursue a particular investigative angle. That was just core to what we did. We, our job was to find out the facts. Brackett, this has been great. Thanks so much for coming. I can't let you go without asking you the mandatory guest question. Uh, what was your first concert? What year? What venue? Who'd you go with? Well, thanks for having me, Jim. And I like closing on a fun question. This won't be exactly the first concert I went to, but the best concert I ever went to uh, was Janis Joplin's last concert. Harvard Stadium, August 1970. The second best was Chuck Berry, Boston University, 19, winner of 1971. Uh, two great personalities, and both those concerts were memorable, historically memorable. That's tremendous. Thank you so much, Brackett. Uh, you're welcome. Thanks for listening, folks. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Brackett Denniston, who, trust me, is young at heart, even though he's old enough to have seen Janis Joplin in concert. I hope you're enjoying other episodes, too. We got something on grand juries. We do Barry Bonds. Please subscribe, download, etc. Talk to you next time.